If you have your Bibles, and we hope you do, would you please turn them to Revelation chapter 18. And as you can tell, we are getting close to the end. It has been a difficult journey through the book of Revelation, certainly not the easiest book to interpret and to study. And then once you do understand what is actually transpiring through the book, it often brings us to a moment of pause to consider the seriousness of it. The book of Revelation, I believe, lists for us and catalogs for us the events that will take place prior to the return of Jesus Christ. The Bible calls that period of time the time of great tribulation. It's a seven-year period of time. Though the first three and a half years start in a very passive manner, the last three and a half become much more aggressive as the wrath of God is poured out upon this world in a final act of judgment prior to the return of Jesus Christ. It is an aspect of Christianity that I think many forget to consider, that one day God will judge sin, not only the sin of individuals, but the sin of the world collectively. And that's what we see happening here. During this seven-year period of time, we see one come to the uh, surface that we call the Antichrist. He is preceded and heralded by one we call the false prophet, terms that Revelation gives these individuals. And under their reign, for the Antichrist will reign during this period of time, first in a period of peace, then in a period of of, uh, tyranny, And as he reigns over the whole world, bringing the whole world into subjection to himself, raising up a statue in the holy place itself of himself and demanding that all the world worship him. And as a result, a great rebellion starts against him. There were many who will forge their allegiance to him by receiving a mark on the hand or on the forehead them to continue in their commerce and buying and selling and trading. But those who do not will suffer a fate. They will be executed for their resistance or their lack of loyalty and allegiance to the Antichrist. Difficult things to consider. And during that seven-year period of time, a world empire will be created. And any world empire history has shown and demonstrated to us are, are comprised of four components. Three that are absolutely critical for the survival of that empire, and then the fourth to bolster that empire. And we looked at this last week, because as we make our way into chapter 17 and 18, as we looked at 17 last week and 18 this evening, It is this empire that God is dealing with. It is this empire that God is dismantling before us. And he's doing so to prepare the way for the return of Jesus Christ. But those four components that are necessary for the stability of any world empire are as follows. Number one, there must be a religious component to it. And we see that religious component being dealt with by God in Revelation chapter uh, 17. As this harlot that rides the beast, 
carried by the beast's authority, the beast being the Antichrist, this harlot representing this fallen religious system that eventually culminates itself and morphs into what the Antichrist desires to implement, and that is a religion of himself. There is a second component, and that is an economic component, a commerce component. For a world empire to succeed, the currency of that empire must be the currency of trade for that empire to exist. You can go back through the annals of history and look at the empires, especially those that are found in the Bible, and you will see these components in each and every case. And we see the Antichrist instituting an economic system with the mark of the hand and the mark of the head, not allowing people to buy and sell. His control of that solidifies his world-governing empire. Lastly, there is a political, where he must reign politically superior. He must be the one who is in charge. Many of the empires that preceded him also claim deity for those who were in charge. For example, during the writing of the Bible, the Roman Empire was in charge. And Caesar considered himself a deity, a god, and would require the citizens of the Roman Empire to acknowledge him as God by signing a declaration of loyalty to him and bowing to him, which Christians could not do at that time. And as a result, they too suffered persecution, great persecution, anything from the loss of their personal wealth and property to the loss of their life. And you see how this last world empire just mirrors those and parallels those that have gone before it. And then you must have a fourth component that bolsters the three, and that is a military. You have to be able to enforce your will upon the people. And of course, you see a military aspect throughout the book of Revelation where the the beast himself, the Antichrist himself, is bringing a military aspect to his uh, control and ultimately winding up in a valley called Megiddo, turning that military attention on the return of the Lord himself. It's hard to imagine that they think they can stop God with guns. And that's where the psalmist writes, And the Lord laughed as he saw this and looked upon this. It is this world system that we see in chapter 17 and 18 that God is dismantling and judging. And it's called the Great Babylon. And as we look at this, the title of my message this evening is The Great Fall Part 2. Part 1 was last week in chapter 17, as I believe the religious component was dealt with. Today I believe we will see by the morning of the kings of the earth and by the morning of the merchants of the earth that we are now dealing with the political and the economic components of this world system. Eight times this world system is called a city and I think that's important for us to understand why John is using that word specifically. It has led many to believe that Babylon, the actual city itself, may be resurrected. And I know in the mid-2000, that view became extremely popular because before the invasion of Iraq, Saddam Hussein was actively trying to rebuild the city of Babylon. 
He was putting millions of dollars of oil money into the rebuilding of Babylon, but it never came to fruition. It never was finished. And there are also some scriptural components to say that it won't be built again, and I'll get to that in just a moment. But John sees before him in this vision that God is giving him, if you remember from the beginning, on the island of Patmos, John is in exile, he has been giving a vision, and he is seeing the dismantling, the judgment of this world system before him, and language that he uses, and imagery and symbolism that he uses is all derived from the Old Testament. You're going to see great parallels to books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel found here in chapter 18, as it dealt with the city of Babylon and the city of Tyre. And you're going to understand that there is a component of that judgment that is now playing out here in the last days. And I'll explain a little bit more of what I mean by that in just a moment. But Chuck Swindoll, at the beginning of his commentary on this chapter, asks a question that I think all of us need to consider before we proceed. That question is this. I ask it, and I ask for you to personally consider it for yourself. What if the entire world as you know it, people, things, events, and activities were suddenly to collapse? What if your source of comfort, luxury, entertainment were lost forever? Sounds like a bad science fiction movie, doesn't it? That kind of thought frightens people. Nobody wants the stock market to crash, the power grid to fail, their employer to go bankrupt or a hurricane to level their city. Too much of our lives depend on the world continuing on just as it is. So, what if the entire world as you know it were to cease? That is the question that we need to consider. We live within a world system. It is a system that has been evolving from the beginning of mankind. It took its first form at the Tower of Babel in the book of Genesis, and it has continued on ever since. A world system that is governed by the ruler of this world, Satan himself. But 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came, and he heralded in the reality of the kingdom of God now being at hand. That his coming was the beginning of the kingdom of God on earth. The earth being restored back to what it once was originally intended to be like. And each and every one of us who are Christians are part of the kingdom of God. And we are here intermingled amongst this kingdom of the world. Lights in the darkness. And as one is fading and is falling and is declining, the other one is ascending. The key is, which one are you on? Those in the world are floating downriver with every other dead fish. And I don't mean to be sarcastic or flippant, but that's just the reality of it all. Those who are not in Christ are all going in the same direction. But those who are in Christ are swimming against the current. They're going upstream. And they will ascend, and they will see the kingdom of God established here on this earth. And they will be with him for all eternity when those in the world are walking just the opposite 
and going in just the opposite direction. Christ was a shining light that came into a dark place. Unfortunately, the darkness uh, didn't like the light and repelled from it and hid itself from it. And as we see now, this is what we're seeing. We're seeing the one decline and the other one ascend. And as he continues to dismantle this world system, he then prepares the stage for his return. But too many of us are, I believe, becoming too dependent on this world system. We are more concerned about our standard of living than we are about the kingdom of God. We're more concerned about what we have now rather than the treasures that we are storing for ourselves in heaven. We have lost focus. We have become too integrated. And therefore we have become too dependent in many ways on the world remaining as it always is. Why do you think people get so nervous when the stock market dips in any great um, fashion? Because people's retirements are all set and fused in that stock market. Why do you think people get concerned about who's going to uh, politically be in office? Because the rules and the laws of the land will be changed in the ideology of that person who is in office. And yet you and I as Christians, we need to know that yes, we are part of this world, but we are not of this world. We are being saved. And God is going to take us out of this world. And then he's going to judge this world. That's the question we pose before we begin and look at our text. Because we're going to see kings of the earth who have bought into this world system. And they are going to absolutely be devastated by its demise. We're going to see merchants of the world who have bought into this world system, prospering on this world system, be devastated by the world system's demise. Let us begin in verse 1 as we read, And after this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean, detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So it begins, the fall of the great Babylon. Again, we are going to try to identify this Babylon as John describes it as a city which would have been completely to be expected at his time, at his place. Let me explain. Throughout the Old Testament, there have been empires that have reigned over the known world. When you come to Daniel chapter 2, it is given a clear uh, contribution to it by the image of the the um, dream that Nebuchadnezzar has there, and Daniel then gives him the interpretation and shows that there are several empires that will reign over the next thousand years, starting with Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and then 
the Romans. Then there are ten toes, which we have explained are the ten nations that will form this last world empire, being of clay and uh, iron, meaning the iron was representative of the legs of that statue, if you remember, and that statue the legs represented the Roman Empire, the legs of iron, and that was mixed with the clay, stating that this last world empire will have its roots in the old Roman Empire. But all of these empires had a single city as its epicenter. Babylon, of course, was the Babylonian epicenter. Rome was the Roman epicenter of the Roman Empire. Make sense? So it isn't uncommon for a whole empire to be summed up in an individual city. And as it is summed up in an individual city, that's where the political, economic, and religious system bolstered by the military are all headquartered in one locale. And John uses the word the great Babylon, meaning that it's greater than the original. It's something more and it's dynamic, but it has all the same characteristics of the original. Now many believe that he is simply speaking of Rome here, because Rome was the empire empire at that time oppressing the Jewish people. There's no doubt that he had Rome in mind. There are indications that he had Rome in mind. But God had more in mind, okay? That there's another empire still coming. That there's something more that's going to take place. But something interesting begins to happen that even I believe the Jewish believers at that time began to understand. Because Peter made an incredible statement when he said in 1 Peter 5.13, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greeting, and so does Mark my son. Now many commentators and scholars believe that Peter used the word Babylon not to represent the city of Babylon, which wasn't in play at that time, but the city of Rome. And that Jewish believers in Jesus Christ realized that Rome was a succession of the empires that preceded it those empires that we spoke of in Daniel chapter 2. That Rome was just an outplaying of everything that God said was going to happen. And they saw it as it was. Yes, Rome currently is in play here, but it started with Babylon. Now actually, if you go through biblical history, you have the Assyrians before Babylon and you have Egypt. But why does it start with Babylon? Because in actuality, in Genesis... The, old, the rebellion against God began when the Tower of Babel. And that's why it is known as Babylon. That's where Babylon originated from. So you had this parallel. These, these empires growing over time throughout history. And I believe there's a gap between the Roman Empire and the Empire of the Last Days because Israel is in play in all of those empires, from Babylon to Rome, Israel is a nation. Israel is then scattered. A pause is created. Israel is regathered. The timeline continues, and the last empire then is formed. The toes. Why? Because at the end of it, a rock comes from heaven in Daniel chapter 2 and smashes the whole thing down. 
that rock is the return of Jesus Christ. It's interesting how the Word of God integrates with itself. And so I have no doubt that the best way for John to describe what he is seeing is to put it in the language that he had. And the epicenters of every empire was a city. And so he gives us a locale, and the actual locale is not as important to me today as the, underall, the, other, the overall understanding of what it actually means. That's what we really need to get to. What does it actually mean? Well, why don't you believe that it's an actual city, Pastor? Well, because Isaiah thirteen nineteen through 22 says, once Babylon is destroyed, it will be destroyed and it won't be re- resurrected. So does Jeremiah 51, 24 through 26. So I believe what we have in play here is a world system that is, uh, that is generated and emulates all the world empires preceding it. John calls it Babylon, as Peter may be referring to Babylon in 1 Peter 5.13, as Rome, the last empire of that time. Now he is saying the great Babylon, the one that is superior to all of them, as Donald Barnhouse wrote in his commentary, what is this world but a combination of religion, government, and commerce? In other words, Babylon in all of its parts stands for that which Christ called the world. Another one, A.T. Johnson wrote, in portraying the destruction of a symbolic city, he describes the judgment of God and the great satanic system of evil that has corrupted the earth's history. Or John Wolvert in his commentary wrote, in chapter 18, the context seems to indicate that Babylon here is viewed in its political and economic and character rather and its religious aspects rather than an individual city of itself. We find these words fallen, fallen, taken directly from Isaiah 21, 8 and 9. As Isaiah wrote, Then he who saw cried out upon a watchtower, I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights. And behold, here comes riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods has shattered to the ground. Meaning, history repeats itself. Just as Babylon has fallen... Now the great Babylon, this last world system under satanic dictatorship, is coming to an end. As Chuck Swindoll wrote, he said, At the end of Revelation 17, we learn that Babylon is the great city, which reigns over the kings of the earth. It is the end-time capital of all of godlessness worldwide under the empire of the Antichrist. It's the future Mecca of me-theism and the Vegas of vanity will be the mother of evil and all forms of false religion. Like Paris, France, she represents a lifestyle of high culture. Like Jerusalem, she's a crossroads of the world's religion. Like Washington, she is teeming with political power. In fact, you will, if you were to take all the world's powerful cities and merge them into one grand megalopolis, you'd have Babylon. The identification of an actual city in the coming tribulation is less important than the fact that it will be a nerve center of the Antichrist's final word system 
world system directly opposed to God and his people. A world system is in play here. This whole world system that currently is governed by the ruler of this world will then be taken over by the Antichrist in submission to this ruler of the world. And it's this world system that God brings to an end. And I believe that is what we see here in Revelation 18, known as the Great Babylon. All the empires that preceded it, they are now all culminated in this last one, this last world system of ultimate rebellion against God. And it shall be brought to an end. Let's continue in chapter 18 as we look at verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion of, for her in the cup she mixed, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I, have, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine. She will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord who has judged her. Again, John describing a city that is in ruins, who is about to be judged. Throughout the Old Testament, you will find that it didn't matter if it was Babylon or Tyre or Israel or whoever, one city after another that posed itself in pride against God often never believed that God was going to judge them. They just didn't believe it was ever going to happen. It appears that's the same here in our text, just as it is in the Old Testament. When it was Israel or Judah, they just didn't think God was going to do it. When Jeremiah came and preached that judgment was coming, other prophets raised up and said, no, 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 peace and uh, longevity and prosperity are in our future. Oh, really? When it came to Tyre, you know, Babylon, it didn't matter, one city after another. Egypt, one city after another all resisted the idea that God was ever going to judge them. Now John is telling us this ultimate world system, the climax of it all will be judged in one single day. One day God is going to bring it down. And you're going to see that uh, that time frame played out as we go farther into this text together. But God calls out a people One last opportunity, 11th hour invitation before the final judgment of the Lord, such as Lot being escorted out of Sodom himself. One last call is given because now this world system is about to come to an end. In Jeremiah 51, 6 and 9, we had a similar parallel account earlier in the history of Babylon itself where God invited people to flee. Verse 5 I'm sorry, verse 6 of chapter 51. Flee from the midst of Babylon. Let everyone save his life. 
Be not cut off in her punishment. For this is the time of the Lord's vengeance, the repayment he is rendering her. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. Suddenly Babylon has fallen and been broken. Wail for her, take balm for her pain, perhaps she may be healed. We would have had healed Babylon, but she was not healed. Forsake her. Let us go each to his own country, for her judgment has reached up to heaven and has been lifted up even to the skies. History again repeats itself. And now we are going to see that this last invitation, the judgment of Babylon is now have come. He is going to make it desolate in a moment and in just a single moment. There's mourning, famine, the burning of a fire. These were all symbolized the fall and the demise of a city. That all would have been in John's memory of Israel herself being, and Jerusalem itself and other cities being judged. And in verse 9 we come to the kings of the earth who watch, who have committed themselves to this world, uh, world system, who have gained their prowess and popularity and power through this world system and the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning they will stand afar off in fear of her torment and say alas alas you great city you mighty city babylon For in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her. Since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold and silver and jewels and pearls and fine linen. Purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth. All kinds of scented wood. All kinds of articles of ivory. All kinds of articles of costly wood bronze and iron and marble, cinnamon and spice, and all those things that are nice. No, I just had that. Innocence, I'm sorry, incense and myrrh and frankincense, wine, oil, flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, and slaves. That is human souls. And the fruit of which your your soul longed for has gone from you. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you. Never to be found again. And the merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand afar off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, the great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour again we find all this wealth has been laid waste. And all the shipmates and the seafaring men, sailors and all who trade is on the sea, stood afar off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and they wept and mourned, crying out. If you read through history... Again, 
To simply say this is speaking of Rome would have difficulty finding an occasion like this, a moment that is described such as this. I truly believe that it is John simply describing all of those who have participated in this world system, all of those who came to political power, all of those who came to great wealth, all of those who enjoyed religious uh, uh, piety and prowess through this, this system have all now been brought to nothing. In a single moment, in a single hour, repeated over and over again. Now please don't miss the imagery. Don't miss the poetic aspects of these words. Some believe that these were even sung at one time in remembrance of these things to remember these things. But they are seeing the dismantling of this world system. Basically coming to the conclusion that things will no longer be as they always have been. The kings, the merchants, who mourn greatly. They weep because their lives will never be the same. Life as they knew it is now over. Wealth and power and pride are all gone all gone in one hour. When you have a moment, I encourage you to read Ezekiel 27 and the lamentation over the city of Tyre, T-Y-R-E, however you like to pronounce it. So similar in so many of its aspects. As one wrote, he said, amidst these passionate cries of woe, John describes the utter implosion of the ungodly religious, political, and economic culture empire that enveloped the entire earth during the three and a half years of the Antichrist reign. Or another one wrote, as they watch the empire of the beast burn amidst its countless treasures, they will also know that their own time is short thinking they had gotten in on an opportunity of a lifetime, those who rested in the lap of Babylon's luxury will suddenly realize that the tables have been turned. And only at this point can there be one perspective that rejoices in 1820, where we are written, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, For God has given judgment for you against her. Remember the martyrs that waited for the finality of judgment against those who committed the atrocities against them earlier on in Revelation 6. That is now completed. You and I as believers, as we read the Word of God, we see this world through the lens of the Scriptures. And we see this world for what it actually is. And we know that to pursue the wealth of this world is so temporary. And we know that wealth may give us a certain degree of sovereignty and ability that we don't have without it. But we know that wealth is very temporary. And that's why Jesus said, store for yourself treasure in heaven when nothing can get at it. Rust and rust and moths and so forth. And no one can steal it. The Bible gives us that perspective. Here they will realize it as they see Babylon burn. We also know that power and prestige that is often uh, preceded by pride is an antagonist towards God. And he brings prideful to places of 
humility. He brings them down. And humility, God exalts. We see that through the lens of Scripture. They're going to see it as Babylon burns. They're going to come to that realization. They're going to come to understand once and for all that this world system has nothing to offer them. And everything that it has to offer can be summed up in this way. All that is in the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. John wrote that, the same individual who wrote the book of Revelation. He summed it up very adequately for us. We know that. And that's why I challenged you at the beginning. How integrated are you with the world? What, were you, what if you were to lose everything today? Would you still be able to continue on in Jesus Christ? It's a horrible thing to consider. But when I read the newspaper or I go online and I read of what Christians are experiencing around the world, I'm embarrassed by the riches that I have and the luxuries that I enjoy. I'm embarrassed by it sometimes. When I see individuals gathered in their church and then they are stormed by ISIS and slaughtered and bodies are left piled on the side of the church inside. Men, women, children. And I go to this beautiful building with no thought of any kind of repercussion. My daughter's safe. My wife is safe. I'm embarrassed by the riches that we have. When I think of men and women who are sacrificing everything that they have to bring the gospel to their own persecutors. I'm embarrassed by the riches that we have. That is what God's called them to do. This is what God's called me to do. But I never take it for granted. I take it as a a blessing that I don't understand and I have to trust the sovereignty of God. I am no better than any one of those believers in Jesus Christ who at this moment are being persecuted. I have not found some special favor in God that placed me here in the United States of America and they have not found that favor and it's placed them somewhere else where they're living out their faith as they are often having to die for their faith. We're no better than they are. But I actually wonder what will happen when we all get to heaven. And these people that we never heard of their names are exalted in heaven for the manner in which they glorified God through their life. Let us realize through the scripture what these people realize here by watching Babylon burn. That there's nothing worth putting in front of or above our relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul said it this way, Christ must have preeminence in every aspect of our life. He must be first in every aspect of our life. Anything above him, the Bible calls idolatry. Now that sounds harsh, but we worship a jealous God, a God who has done for us what no one else could have ever done for us. And he loves us with such an incredible love. That love was demonstrated through the greatest sacrifice that anyone could have ever made on our behalf. Let us remember these things as we continue on. As we conclude this evening and we come to the end of Revelation chapter 18 and all of heaven is asked to rejoice for that time of judgment has come. In verse 21, 
Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of the harpist and the musicians and the, of the flute players, of the trumpets, will be heard no more. And the, a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. Do you get a pattern here yet? For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and all who have been slain on the earth. No more. It'll be heard in you no more. And if you look at each one of those lines, some again believe that this portion specifically of Revelation 18 was possibly a song that Christians sung as a song of anticipated and hoped for victory that Babylon would be no more. This world city would be no more. Poetic, rhythmic, and definitely something that emulates the songs of the Old Testament that were often composed to glorify God in all that He has done. As one wrote, he said this, During the first half of the tribulation, as the beast rises to power, Ecclesiastical, that is church, and political and economic Babylon will work together in opposing the Lord and His people. It will seem that God does not care, but at the right time the Lord will vindicate His people and destroy both the harlot and the great city. God is patient with His enemies, but when He does begin to work, He acts suddenly and thoroughly." In fact, in Jeremiah 25, 8 through 10, we read of this, the same type of judgment coming upon the, the nation of Israel. For moreover, I will banish from there the voice of myrrh, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, and the grinding of the millstone, and the light of the lamp will cease." The same form of judgment, the same verbiage that is used for judgment in the Old Testament is used here again in the New Testament to describe the judgment of God upon the last world system. In fact, there's an interesting end to Jeremiah's book. Jeremiah 51, 61 through 64 says this, concerning this aspect of a millstone. And Jeremiah said to Sarah. When you come to Babylon, see that you read all these words, that is the words in which he wrote, and say, O Lord, you have said concerning this place that you will cut it off so that nothing shall dwell in it, neither man nor beast. It shall be desolate forever. And when you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it and cast it into the middle of the Euphrates. And say, thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster that I am bringing upon her and they shall become exhausted. Thus fare 
are the words of just thus far, excuse me, are the words of Jeremiah. Again, the parallels all throughout the Old Testament. In the same fashion that God dealt with individual cities, he will deal with the final world system. Beginning from the Tower of Babel, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, the, uh, the Romans, and this last empire of ten nations, which was represented by the ten toes. What God did locally in the Old Testament, God will do globally in the New Testament at the end, dealing with this final empire. And this then paves the way for the return of Jesus Christ. The moment that you've all been waiting for, that unfortunately you're going to have to wait till next week to get into as we read about the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But what return or what entrance would it be if there wasn't a great worship service before it? And the first portion of chapter 19 begins with the word hallelujah over and over and over again. As the saints rejoice the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this world system that we are currently in Everything that we see on the news and that we read in the magazines and see on the internet, these things that we just can't seem to wrap our minds around, they are all stepping stones to lead us to the end. And you see where it's going. You see where this is all taking us. As the religions of the world are crying out saying, we need more unity. We need to break down the walls of division. Let us no longer be dogmatic and say that there is only one God and one way to God. Let us not be so critical of one another. Politically, let us try to bring about unity and consensus. Let us have one governing body. Let us have one governing law for not just one nation, but for the whole world. The economic community. Let us no longer have one set of currency after another. Let us not deal with exchange rates. Let us not be dependent on any one country going forward that happens to be stable at that time. Let us bring in a world currency that all the world will enjoy, that all the world can use and to exchange, and there will no longer be that division of currency, there will no longer be that exchange rate, and there will no longer be that dependency on one particular nation, but let us be dependent on the whole world. These are things that you can read in the paper throughout the week being said. They've been being said for the last 40 years. And every day we get a little bit closer. And every day we get a little bit closer. 